Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker brings together the finest literary communities on the web. With breakout brands, publishers, magazines, and other advertisers. It's an ad network for book people, for publishers, for authors, and for literary content providers. The Litbreaker ad network serves 5 million ads per month to nearly 1 million unique readers for dozens of happy advertisers. Do you run an online magazine or blog? You should check it out. Are you a publisher? Are you an author? Do you need to get the word out about a book? Uh, or do you need to get the word out about a product or service that would appeal to intelligent, bookish people? Look no further. Litbreaker bridges the gap between advertisers and the literary and pop cultural websites where their target customers spend their time. Visit litbreaker.com for more information. It's the very best way to reach book people online. It just is. That's litbreaker.com. Go there. Tell them I sent you. It's an advertising network for book nerds. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is apparently happening. This is supposedly enjoyable. How are you today? How's it going for you out there? What is the situation currently uh, in your world? My name is Brad Listy, and I'm sitting here as usual in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. My guest today is Justin Hawking. Uh, very excited about this. Very excited about his book. It is a memoir. It is called The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. And uh, it is the official April selection of the TNB Book Club, the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. Uh, for those of you who do not know, the nervousbreakdown.com is an online magazine that I founded back in 2006. It has its own monthly book club, and you can sign up for that over at the nervousbreakdown.com. Uh, for like $9.99 a month, you get a brand new book delivered to your door every 30 days. So that's a good deal. And then I interview. Uh, all of the book club authors on this very program. So Justin and I are going to be talking in just a moment. Uh, first, uh, however, I do have some mail here. been getting a lot of mail lately. 
Uh, the first letter comes from a guy named Dennis who writes, Dear Brad, longtime fan of the podcast, first time emailer. I've listened to every episode, usually while running around Cambridge and Boston or cooking dinner on Sunday nights in my small yet functional kitchen. I know you like to hear where people are listening, so there. As an aspiring writer, Other People is a tremendously valuable resource for me. And yes, I am a premium subscriber, but I've never felt inclined to write and express my thanks. That changed once I read your essay, uh, This is Where I'm At With It Right Now, and then the more recent essay entitled, All of My Worries Are Average. Both really resonated. I just wanted to thank you for putting yourself out there every week and giving voice to some of the wonder and dread that I think most of us humans are experiencing these days. I also wanted to let you know that I'm very sorry to hear about you and your wife's trials with regards to having a second child. To go through so many losses in such a short amount of time, that's some serious pain and grief. Again, thank you for putting that out there with such candor and grace. My wife and I spent almost a year uh, trying to get pregnant. When When we finally did, we were, of course, elated and relieved, but we soon found out that it was a twin ectopic pregnancy, two embryos lodged in my wife's right fallopian tube. I was riding the subway to work when my wife called. I needed to get to the hospital right away. When I arrived, she was already in the ultrasound room undergoing an examination. Uh, I walked in, saw two bright points of light on an otherwise murky black screen. Through tears, my wife told me it was twins. It didn't take long for me to realize that she wasn't crying tears of joy. She was admitted to surgery right away because if the twins continued to grow, the tube would likely burst and she could have, and she could have suffered internal bleeding and associated risks like infection, toxic shock, and death. My wife is a doctor and we were in her hospital, her workplace. Most of the people attending to her were her colleagues. And while they were caring, they were mostly geeking out about how rare it was to see a twin ectopic pregnancy. After the surgery, which removed the embryos in my wife's fallopian tube, The surgeon came out to tell me that my wife was fine and then proceeded to show me pictures of the surgery, pictures of my wife's insides, because they were, quote, really super cool. She didn't apologize for the loss of the two potential children we'd been working so hard to bring into existence or the removal of half of my wife's reproductive system. As I'm sure you and your wife know, the aftermath was brutal. The doctors told us that there was virtually no chance that we could get pregnant naturally with only one working ovary slash fallopian tube and that we should probably start looking into IVF or adoption. The day after surgery was our fifth wedding anniversary. We mostly sat on our couch, watched TV, and cried. We both felt a real loss with those two. Regardless of when you define the start of life, no matter how early or late in a pregnancy, uh, that's all political semantics, I think. If they're yours, it's a profound loss. Two months later, Uh, we had our first IVF consultation. Within a battery of tests for each of us, including the dreaded sperm count and motility screening for me, my wife would have to take a pregnancy test just in case. That test came back positive, and we're now the stupidly overjoyed parents of a perfect 12-week-old girl. So I guess I'm telling you my story because you put yours out there, and uh, I don't know. It gets better? Maybe? Your words help, though. I know that much. Your thoughts on parenting, the respect, love, and admiration you show for your daughter have been as helpful and instructive to me as a new father as your interviews are for writers. Please keep it going. You're connecting. That's what matters. I wish you and your family nothing but the best. Thank you, Dennis. 
So what do you say to that one? That's an awfully nice letter. I appreciate that, Dennis. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the kind words. And, uh, you know, like some things in life, I think you only tend to learn by going through them. Maybe, maybe most things. And, you know, I think that's certainly the case with parenthood and, uh, things like miscarriages and fertility issues and so on. Uh, you know, I, I'm sure there are ways to get at that stuff empathically, but for the most, you know, for the most part, you sort of have to be in it to understand, uh, the situation and the magnitude of the experience emotionally. And, uh, I should also add, uh, some congratulations. I'm happy for you. I love stories like that. You know, when people triumph over, uh, when people triumph over anything, I love those kinds of stories, but, uh, in, in particular, this kind of, uh, pregnancy related stuff going through that, ha- you know, that heartbreak and then, uh, having a healthy baby in the end. That's great. Uh, because, and, and not to sound corny because it can say, it just sounds corny inherently, but, uh, you know, it really is a gift. Kids are there. They are. I don't use the word blessing very often at all, but kids are a blessing. And, uh, that's real. And my wife and I are lucky to have one, uh, our daughter, hopefully we'll be lucky enough to have another one, but if not, uh, you know, we're still lucky infinitely. And that's the only way to look at it really. So thanks once again, Dennis, and, uh, get some sleep. <laughs> yeah. If it's possible. So, uh, one more letter. And uh, then we'll get on to the main event. This one comes from a listener named Eric. He says, uh, Dear Brad, not to make you self-conscious, but when you answer letters in the monologue by focusing on correcting people's understanding of various non-essential parts of your media presence, you kind of seem like a little bitch. And and actually, he says here, a little bitch, L-I-L. So he continues, the new website looks fine, but it's peripheral to the audio. Mira and Spencer seem to enforce a lot of negative stereotypes about young people, especially in terms of their contributions to the other people blog. Can you encourage them to push their content a little outside of what they might be? I won't say comfortable with, because it seems like they aren't comfortable with anything at all. Um, So maybe they could push their content outside of what they might be fixated on. So that's a non-positive yet still encouraging response to the new writing on the blog. If you read this on the show and conclude with something like quote, negative responses mean the show is doing really well and getting a lot of hits or quote, haters make me famous end quote, please check your privilege, make a smart podcast, not a sad exploitation webzine. Stay strong, Eric. So thanks, Eric, for weighing in. I appreciate it. I, you know, and what, what to say to that? Uh, Spencer and Mira, uh, sad exploitation, checking my privilege. Uh, what does that mean? Haters making me famous. <laughs> I'm doing a, a literary podcast, uh, about authors and books out of my apartment. Uh, I don't think I'm operating under any illusions that I'm famous though. I do deserve to be. And, uh, I plan on being an international sensation sometime within the next, uh, 50 years. And, you know, while I am certainly privileged, uh, by, uh, world standards and very grateful for that, you know, I'm hardly on easy street.
haters make me famous. So, you know, as for, as far as Mira and Spencer are concerned, pushing their content outside of the realm of what they're fixated on or whatever, you know, I think the entire premise of the other people magazine content online uh, is that it's confessional and personal, informal, and hopefully sometimes funny and insightful. And, you know, that's sort of the guide. That's the guide we decided to use going in. And, uh, I think that writing about what one is fixated on makes perfect sense, uh, to a degree anyway, you know, I don't think it's good for writers to write about what they're not fixated on in some way or interested in deeply, if that's synonymous. And you know what? I've been thinking about this lately. Uh, you know, I really only like to read stuff by writers who are writing for their lives. Like it's a desperate act. They're desperately fixated, you know, somehow. Uh, I like reading uh, books and other stuff by writers who are writing like they have nothing left to lose. That's what I mean to say. And uh, usually you can tell when it's happening. And I should add that it's hard to do. It's especially hard to do consistently. It's a hard space to be in. To work from the inside out like that and to sustain it and to really try to tell the truth and to think well and clearly. And, you know, uh, hopefully we're all making the effort. I think we are. You know, you know, I feel like Spencer uh, hasn't really shown all that he can do yet because of time resources and because he's been freaking out and he's been overworked and depressed in New York. But then he's been writing about that, honestly. Uh, and then Mira, you know, especially her first essay about body dysmorphia, that to me, you know, that seemed really vital and personal. Uh, as a, uh, you know, as a form of, of, uh, creative expression for her and, you know, her other stuff is more explicitly, uh, comedic. That's fine. It's lighter fare. Um, but you know, I don't think based on what our conception of what the site is, that it would work for me to start lording over their creative decisions and pushing people to write about certain things. That seems silly. You know, but I, you know, at, at the same time, all of us, as we keep going, as we continue uh, in this uh, vein, you know, you, we're going to have to get creative and possibly work more externally in order to sustain the flow of content. Because, uh, what I've found over the years is that, uh, you know, you can only gut yourself so many times writing personal nonfiction, and then you need a break or else what happens is that you just start repeating yourself. You just wear yourself out, not to mention you wear out the readers. So, uh, you know, I'm aware of that. So thanks for the letter, Eric. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long awaited craft book by Steve Almond based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns, depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories.
by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. And uh, speaking of a writer who does work from the kind of place I was talking about just a moment ago, uh, a guy who is writing for his life, that would be Justin Hawking, today's guest, his new memoir, the official April selection of the TNB Book Club is called The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World, and it's available now from Grey Wolf. It's a terrific book. I'm very pleased to be giving it a push in the book club, and it's great to have Justin here on the show. So here he is, folks. This is Justin Hawking, and his new memoir, once again, is called The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. I'm in Portland, Oregon, and I'm in the Independent Publishing Resource Center, which is a nonprofit literary organization that I help direct here. And I am upstairs in the conference room, sitting around a couple IKEA tables, and I've got the overhead fluorescent lights shut off because I don't like those. And yeah. uh, downstairs, downstairs uh, in another room, there's a screen printing workshop going on with about ten individuals. And uh, there's some traffic going by outside. Okay, uh, so I I, I want to get to the uh, you know the the independent publishing resource center, and I want to get yeah. to Portland. But I want to start with your just uh, your hatred of fluorescent lighting, <laughs> which <laughs> which I which I imagine you endured when you were working in publishing in New York City. Yeah, I mean, is that absolutely. is it rooted there? I mean, I, I'm sure you have flor- like you know memories of uh, fluorescent lighting during your your stint as a uh, editorial. Yeah. Was it an editorial assistant in New York? Yeah, I, I so I moved to New York uh, from Colorado in 2003, and you know I, I had an interesting job in publishing, and, and a really sweet boss. I really liked working with, but um, you know the the atm- the sort of corporate atmosphere of, of just the physical building that I was working in it was in Midtown Manhattan, and we were up on the 16th floor. And the, the, the low configuration of of cubicles and desks where all the editorial assistants toiled was uh, referred to as the pit. <laughs> it was just like in the middle of everything, and there were there were zero, there were absolutely no windows, and everyone knew your business. And I mean, I think a lot of people work in that kind of situation, but this this one seemed particularly bad. So much so that it earned that nickname, and and there were the, the lighting was all fluorescent, and it, it pretty consistently gave me a headache, and and you know it's kind of like a typical corporate corporate atmosphere. But um, but you know the thing is though is that like when I because I I think I had like a, a re, I I know I had a really naive understanding of publishing at the dawn of my career, like when I was going into it, I uh-huh. had, I had a very idealized vision of it. And uh, I sold a novel. I wanted I wanted desperately to get out to New York City, and I wanted to I wanted to meet who was publishing my book. That was important to me. Yeah. And I remember yeah. going to the office at Simon and Schuster and walking in and just being like, "Oh, you know, like I don't want to work uh-huh. here." <laughs> and I think I had. I was gonna, I was just going to say like I, I think I had some sort of vision of it where there's like you know mahogany and like warm hues. Uh-huh. And, like, but it's not that way at all. And it makes me think of like physical spaces. And I know that there's obviously like a financial factor to it, you know, like a office space is expensive, especially in Manhattan. And there's only so much you can do, but like there's gotta be a healthier way to design workspaces for people. I agree. I agree. Absolutely. And, and like the, just so just the way that the office was, was managed was felt so old school to me. Like they, 
often would have a secretary posted at the door to make sure people were arriving at on time. Oh my god! And that, yeah, you know, and they would like check through the list, and I, I just kind of couldn't believe that, you know, based on the way that, like, I mean, I feel like so many office spaces are, you know, staffed by younger people. They're becoming more and more flexible and trying to create a more home-like environment. Well, but okay, now here's another thing that bums me out, is that you have these uh, corporate environments or just business environments generally, even if they're not, you know, technically corporations, where, uh, like, more and more it seems, like, like to, to get in, you have to be willing to accept less than a living wage. You have to be willing to accept, like, yeah. grinding poverty and, like, excessive work weeks just to, like, get your foot in the door. And it, you know what it is? It's exactly like a fraternity, where it's like, We'll let you be a member of this organization, but you have to go through hell, <laughs> and we're yeah. gonna we're gonna torture you before we accept you as one of our own. And only if you endure this um, will mm. we, will we give you like full human status. And like I, <laughs> I find that revolting. Yeah, I mean yeah. I don't know. That's just maybe my own stuff, but like it just seems like that. Yeah. It's, it's like I, I think that like yeah, obviously people should pay their dues, and obviously people should be expected to work hard, but like. Does it have to come at that kind of cost? Like, should you be expected to accept uh, less than a living wage and like really like inhumane conditions? It just seems like too much to ask, or like sort of a pathetic, you know, set of circumstances. Yeah, you know, I think part of the problem for me too was that I, I'm, I got into that industry at age thirty, and you know, I had finished my MFA and I taught at the at Colorado State University as an adjunct for a year, and then, and then I went and took that position and. You know, I just, I was really late to the game. There were people younger than me that had been working in that industry since right out of college, and they were already, you know, further along than I ever would be. So it was just kind of like a weird detour for me. And so some of my, some of my kind of like um, antipathy uh, towards towards the industry is, is just kind of, you know, based on that rather than... What, you had like a 20, yeah. do you have like a 25-year-old boss or something? <laughs> No, no, he, he, no, he was older than me, but he, he was, he was just, he was really nice and he treated me really, very well. And so I, sometimes I feel bad kind of bagging on the industry and, you know, it's, it's a hard industry to make it in, especially in New York. There's, there's so many people that, uh, so many really smart, talented people that are, that, that work in publishing and they have to bounce around a lot. Um, they have to move from house to house if they want to move up and that's not necessarily always good for the the books and the writers that they're shepherding through the process. Sometimes books get orphaned, and as you know. And yeah, that happened to me. Like my editor bounced right after, like, or as my book was getting published, and then it, suddenly you're on the phone with somebody who has like no knowledge yep. of you or interest in you, and you're just like, okay. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. So I, you know, I think there's some houses that are that are uh, weathering the storm really well, and others that that aren't. But you know, I. I I um for me it was just personal, it was just like this personal thing where I d just wasn't right fit for me. But right, God, I, I hope and pray that you know that um, the industry can. I think it is finding new ways, interesting ways to thrive. But um, I really want it to. Yeah, no, I like that's a, it's a good point, and I think there there are tons of good people working in it. I just think that like you know there are these entrenched uh, businesses that have been around for so long and that have become so huge and that have often been absorbed by these giant corporate conglomerates that 
Uh, yeah, Viacom and Bertelsmann. Yeah, it just gets hard for them to be as nimble as they might need to be to adjust quickly. It's like a, yeah. you know, to go back to like uh, seafaring metaphors, you know, to tack your sails <laughs> as quickly as you need to tack them when the uh, landscape is changing as fast as it's been changing and publishing is not easy when you're in this like huge monolithic organization. And I think you have a lot of good, yeah. a lot of good people with a lot of good intentions who are in that situation and. I don't know. I don't know how it's all going to play out, but it sort of seems like a, a smaller boat might be better in some respects. <laughs> yeah, I think some of the I think some of the smaller houses are are doing pretty well. Um, like Grey Wolf, you know. like Grey Wolf, for instance. Grey Wolf, yeah. <laughs> uh, they, you know, one of their posts just won the Pulitzer Prize today, which is yesterday, which is really exciting. And, totally. Uh, Norton Norton is another one that I really admire. It's kind of more mid-sized, but still remains independent. Um, yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a, an exciting time for some of the small and mid-sized presses, and also some of the indie bookstores. Totally. Well, yeah. I mean, I feel like especially like indie bookstores that have a very strong understanding of like the local population, and that I don't know. Mm-hmm. That seems to be the model that makes the most sense to me. You know, as a consumer, and then as like an imaginary uh, proprietor, is that like, you know, if you really if you really understand what people in your area are interested in, and you can curate for them then it seems like you have yeah. a better chance of like developing loyalty and relationships with like your, your local population. Ah, yeah. I see a lot of bookstores becoming more of a, I mean, I think bookstores have always uh, had this element, but, but more and more they're becoming like a community space, like a, like a coffee shop or right. people go to congregate. And, and I think that's, I think that's a really great no, I've been. Th- I had this. I've been having this conversation, like not only in the context of bookstores, but like I got into a conversation about like the rise of uh, like yoga culture in uh, America. Yeah. you know, which I can find, you know, in like I, I'm capable of like exhibiting disdain for it, like you know, sometimes even though I participate in it to a degree, like I'll do yoga. You yeah, know, but y- uh, you know, all the the uh, the kind of like um, the accessorizing of it, you know, like having the outfit and like the. The, the quiver and the the whole thing like the culture can be a little bit um, I don't know l- less than enjoyable sometimes but whatever the point is that um, when it comes to bookstores and your notion of having like bookstores become community spaces and you think about like the rise of like yoga culture which I guess isn't too far afield from a bookstore in a sense because it's they're both sort of meditative activities I think yeah um, I think yeah. There, I think there's a void. In our culture, like this is the argument that I was making, like over drinks and conversation with a friend. Anyway, uh, there's uh-huh. a, there's like a void in our culture, uh, and especially in like you know in, in the younger generations um, that has been left by uh, kind of the fade of organized religion. Like most people are, even if they claim to be religious, don't necessarily participate. Um, you know, regularly in the way that like my parents' generation does, you know, like the, yeah. the, the Sunday church going and like feeling a sense of community and like neighborliness or whatever with the people that you see every Sunday. And so people yeah. go to these other places. And I think that there's like, I mean, now to like pervert it a little bit, I feel like there's a market for that. People need that, you know? So uh, if you have a bookstore and people are browsing around, that's not, not necessarily like the greatest um, community environment because people tend to be quiet in bookstores. It's like a library. Uh, likewise for a yoga studio, people go into this, into the studio and they might chat before class, but then once the class starts, obviously there's no conversation. So if you annex the bookstore or you annex the yoga studio with some sort of community space, uh, involving caffeine, <laughs> 
that uh-huh. then all of a sudden people can start to hang out with one another, which is what they're really there uh-huh. for anyway, you know? Yeah, you know, I think it's a really interesting way to look at it because, you know, I think that I think people really are looking for meaning on so many levels, and it reminds me of, uh, you know, one of my heroes, the psychologist Carl Jung. He talked about how the, the sort of the, the ultimate goal of individuation of becoming a fully rounded human was to develop a religious attitude, which didn't necessarily mean becoming religious or becoming a member of an organized church or anything like that, but just just developing that sense of reverence and community and, and that, that that attitude. I love that idea. And yeah. I think I think yeah, you see it play out in in uh certainly in, in uh yoga and, and around literature. To me this is, you know, in so many ways like uh I mean I think that my sort of search for like a religious attitude plays out in a lot of different a lot of different levels, but certainly through liter- literature and art and well, and also, and also with uh, like the men's group that you joined, like twelve-step programs. Yeah. Twelve-step programs, like Kurt Vonnegut used to say, like the greatest church in America is Alcoholics Anonymous, because yeah. it really fosters like open, honest uh, communication, like sometimes excruciatingly honest. Um, yeah. But people need that, you know. They need to find a way to express their truth, and they need to have witnesses, and they need to feel a sense of connectivity. And I think, um, like the thing that you're talking about with regard to Jung. Uh, and the you know the religious attitude and people gravitating towards you know whatever it might be a twelve step program yoga a bookstore a, a book group a writing group whatever it is it's about connectivity all of the above yeah it's about yeah. it's about connectivity and loneliness and yeah. uh, I think that you know all of that stuff anything that can work against that loneliness and that can remind us of um, our deep connectivity which I think is like uh, you know, I, I tend to believe that that's an, uh, a really powerful truth that often gets overlooked by, by myself included, <laughs> you know, so any, Brad, you know, I, I read your, uh, I, I've been reading some of your podcasts and I, or your, um, your, uh, blog posts and I read this, all of my worries are average. Yeah. But I really love that. I really love that piece. And, and you mentioned something about, um, you know, sort of like this, People that have gone through hell. Um, was it Hubert Sel- Selby Jr.? Um, well, people that have you- gone through hell are some of the happiest people on earth. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, li- I like that. And uh, I don't, you know, when I moved to New York, um, for whatever reason, I just, I I did get really deeply involved in, in uh, probably it was just like the age that I was, you know, I was in my early 30s and and uh, around a lot of other people around that age, a little bit older, and just like it felt like everyone was in sort of, like some sort of recovery movement or another, and they were like sort of <laughs> done with their partying years, yeah, and looking for something different and looking for more of a sane way to live. And you know, I, I struggled in New York, but I, I I met just some of the most uh, genuine, open people, and I, I feel so grateful for that. And and. Uh, one person in particular was this uh, guy named Andy Kessler, who is kind of one of the focal points of the book in some ways. And uh, he was a former professional skateboarder. He was kind of like that. The uh, I don't know if you're familiar with like Dogtown and Z Boys and that whole thing, but um, Tony Alva is kind of like one of the legendary pro skateboarders from the West Coast, uh, from California. And this guy Andy was kind of the equivalent of Tony Alva on the East Coast kind of like a godfather figure and and uh 
during the 80s and 90s, it just kind of like, you know, skateboarding died for a little bit, and he went into a tailspin and kind of disappeared on the streets and became a heroin addict. And by the time I knew, had met, by the time I met him, he'd been sober for 10 years and was really, really um, invested in NA and just helped, had all these people that he sponsored and um, was just one of the, I mean, he was, he was just pure, like a pure New York kind of guy with the, with the Brooklyn brogue and the attitude, but also just one of the most amazing people that I've ever met. And just, just being around him, uh, for me, yeah, it was, it was like a, somehow he just sort of like, uh, like a, he was like a loneliness killer, you know? Well, no, like the, uh, pa- the passages in the book where you describe him, there's a, there's almost like a saint-like quality to him and a magnetism to him, you know? Yeah, there was, there was, there was. And, and I think, and it's like you said, like people that have been through hell and who have made it back, um, they know something that we don't all know. Uh, and, and, yeah, it, you know, on the one hand, he could be such a pain in the ass, <laughs> and and uh, you would sometimes just want to get as far from him as you could. But for the most part, he did have that that, that total magnetism. What do you think? Like, let's let's try to drill down into that because that's like a, a topic of fascination for me. Like you, like just at the level of human suffering, you know? Because if we if we're talking yeah. about hell, we're talking about human suffering <laughs> um, yeah. of some kind or another, whether mental, emotional, physical, etc., or all of the above. Um, and so, you know, not everybody who goes to that kind of hell, not all people who go to that kind of hell transcend it or come back with gold. Do you know what I'm saying? Like some people, they, 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 um, succumb to it or something, you know, something happens. They kill themselves or they OD or whatever it is. Um, so what, like, like, what is it, you know, about him that, uh, you know, a enabled him to, to transcend and continues to, uh, you know, and be like, um, I guess like I think about people like, you know, uh, just people in my life, the average people who don't necessarily have some big addiction that they're battling against or some illness or some, you know, very explicit, intense form of suffering, but yet who have the very common form of human suffering that plagues us all yeah. one way or another, but yet who don't necessarily confront it and, uh, or, you know, they, they try to suppress it. Uh, by either yeah. just like, you know, surfing the internet or, um, smoking pot, you know, or doing whatever it yeah. is that they do watching game of Thrones, <laughs> uh-huh. um, you know, and I feel Hello. like, so, I mean, you know, what is it? Can you, can you speak to that with regard to Kessler? I, you know, I'll, I'll do my best. I don't know if I can, but you know, Andy actually passed away, um, a few years back, uh, just a bizarre accident. He was stung by a wasp while surfing out at Montauk. Oh my God. And uh, it was it was just so absurd, given uh, everything that you know, how much um, how much he had lived, and and how many hard times he survived through, and and then that to that you know for that to be kind of the way that he went was was absurd and tragic. Life has a um, cruel sense of humor. Yeah, but um, I think it I think it kind of goes back to what I was saying about about Yoon, which is. Um, and you know, there's, he, he said of, of certain alcoholics that they're like, yeah, cause Jung was actually involved in the genesis of, of AA and I didn't know that. Um, Bill, yeah. Bill Wilson, one, you know, one of the founders of AA wrote, corresponded with Carl Jung 
And in, there's, there's this famous letter um, that he wrote to Bill, Will, Bill Wilson, and he was you know, really supportive of what they were doing. And he basically said, <clears throat> some, some alcoholics are so far gone that nothing is going to help them short of a spiritual transformation. And, you know, that, just that word spirituality is freighted in our, it's freighted with a lot of baggage in our culture, and, and you know, I don't know if I can give a clear definition of it. Um, and it makes me a little uneasy to talk about it because it's hard to talk about it without making it sound trite. Um, but in, you know, from, from the perspective of like, from my perspective, seeing someone like Andy who had gone through that kind of subtle transformation and a lot of other people that, you know, I've met in, um, in those kind of fellowships or through yoga or, um, through what other, what other area of my life that, that has often been the case, and it's, it's just kind of like, um, I think it's like a, the moving beyond the ego, like kind of getting over yourself, and um, and uh, kind of letting something else come through. Well, yeah, and, it's, a, it's an interesting point to make because you know people, there's like a fine line between um, engaging with your suffering and becoming a, like self obsessed. <laughs> Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like, so what's the what's the uh, how do you how do you transcend it? Is it like an outward turning where you reach out to to others and you or you you share it in a book or whatever it is? You know, some work of art. Like, what what's the difference? Yeah, I think it's a combination of I think it's a combination of a lot of those. Um, When you yeah, when it's like when you move uh, moving from being so so self obsessed, which as writers I think we're always going to struggle with that, right? And and that's. It's part of what drives us to write memoirs or to write novels, and I think that's that's fine. But it, um, you know, with someone like Andy, um, he was he was just so outwardly focused. Like he had so many people that um, he helped, you know, and he didn't make a big deal of it. He was just he was just available for people, and he, he was someone you could really talk to just because he he'd been you know he'd been through a lot, and he was just open for that. And there's this it's just kind of a yeah, it's almost like an alchemical process. You mentioned gold earlier. It's also a very union concept, you know, that like sort of like digging down into the suffering is where is where you where you dig up the gold and, and it's having gone through that process, it's like you're it, it, you're that much um more attractive to other people who, who are trying to go through it as well. Well that's yeah, that's an important point. It's like, you know, this this notion of happiness, um, which I think I was sort of driving at in that essay that I wrote, is that you know, I think people have this concept that if they're not like perfectly happy, that there's something really wrong with them. But like the the truth, yeah. the truth that you were just speaking to is that uh, suffering and happiness are inextricable. You can't have one without the other. You would never know. Sure. You would never know what happiness even is if you hadn't suffered, and vice versa. You yeah. know, and so um, that's an important insight. <laughs> and so maybe yeah. so, somebody who's who's really known suffering intimately and has spent time sort of leaning into it and like facing that pain is somebody who also knows what happiness is intimately, you would think. And maybe that's yeah. where, maybe that understanding is where the magnetism comes from. Yeah, and, you know, I, I people ask me, uh, you know, during readings, like, do you have any advice for writers? And I, I certainly don't advocate intentional suffering. Like, there's, I think there's a, there's a form of that, like, kind of like Bukowski-inspired form where people are, like, going out and, like, you know, I'm going to really suffer through these four... Uh, <laughs> vodka tonics tonight and it's going to improve my writing and um, I don't really believe in that um, I really don't but I do believe that 
that uh, as writers, that's one thing that we really have going for us is that that ability to take like you know what whatever degree of trauma or suffering it is that we've gone through and, and sort of transform it and and offer it up to the public in a way that that can be sustaining and and um, yeah, I, that's just something I, I love about about the act of writing and art making. Yeah, and like, listen, if you're going to be like, just the, the very act of deciding to try to become a writer, you're going to get plenty of suffering with that. There's no need to. Try. Yeah, you don't need to. Uh, for, you don't need to force the issue. It'll happen automatically. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I agree. So, okay, so I want to talk a little bit about space <clears throat> because space figures into your book in a big way, and you have a very strong sensitivity to nature. Um, I think I'm the same way. Like I lived in Colorado, yeah. as, we, as we were talking about before I came. Uh, we came on the air. Uh, you grew up there. And then yeah. you make this move and Colorado, beautiful place. Like, and it's kind of impossible to live there without developing an appreciation for nature and open space. It just sort of does that to you. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, then you make this move to New York city, which uh, is not known for its open space. And so I find it sort of, right. po- I, find, I find it sort of poignant and natural that, uh, somebody like yourself, um, you know, with your, uh, geographical background and your, and your interest in, skateboarding and being outside and like your, you know, your, your very active nature would wind up yeah. gravitating towards, um, Rockaway beach and like New York's, um, you know, to, to this point, probably largely unknown surf culture. So talk about, right. talk about that journey and like the adjustment from Colorado to New York and, you know, how you like how that must've really been a big, huge, um, you know, it, it must have had a huge impact on your interstate to suddenly be in this um, place that is so vastly different from what you had known. Yeah, well, I, you know, I grew up in uh, in Colorado. I went to high school in San Diego, so I certainly have, you know, just so I'm so used to having, you know, I, I think we we living in places like like we do now, and here in LA, right? Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we're to some degree in LA, but but I mean, I think we're just, we're used to just having like so much open space, and and then you get to a place it's, like New York, and it's just like non-existent, you know, for the most part. I mean, you have Central Park, um, but it it feels like very kind of manicured. Um, it's not the same. It's not. I mean, you know. yeah, it's, it's not the same. <laughs> it's not the same. And and let me let me uh, start by saying how much I do really love New York City. Um, you know, I did have, I did struggle there quite a bit, but I think it's such a fantastic city. Right. Um, but but it yeah, just it was just it was just a shock to the system as it is for so many people that moved there from different places and and so um, I just when I first went to to Rockaway Beach in Queens and uh, a friend of mine took me and you know we brought our surfboards on the subway and it was just like. Uh, such a revelation I felt it was just yeah I just I just felt so drawn to that place and I never I never really considered myself much of a beach person even in San Diego uh, in my teens I, you know I liked the beach but I was I was much more into skateboarding at that point um, but then in New York it was just like that's that's where I wanted to be any spare moment that I had was there and it was like you know it was like in New York there's no there's rarely a horizon unless you're up in a skyscraper or something, and and at the beach there was an actual you know you could like actually grasp a, a horizon, and and 
and that that was again kind of a kind of a revelation for me and and i just I just think it's such an interesting like Rockaway Beach is such an interesting place it's so heavily urbanized it's just it's lined with you know um, housing projects and it's it's one of the most urbanized beaches in in the world I would guess well and then um, the water's got to be filthy right <laughs> uh you know, I was surfing in Santa Monica the other day, uh, and I was thinking, wow, this is so much different than Rockaway Beach. Um, it's it's not, it depends on the day. Yeah. Depends on the day, but there's definitely, like, the water itself isn't that bad. There's just, it's just, there's, like, a lot of plastic bags and junk and stuff in the water. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, but it's, it's actually really, I mean, it's on, on a summer day, you can go in and just trunks, you know, you don't have to have a wetsuit and the, the water's actually really pretty pleasant. Yeah. I mean, there's something great about being like, I love to swim in the ocean. I'm not a good surfer. Like I didn't, I, yeah. it, I you know, I tried to learn when I first moved out here years ago, but the breaks were so crowded mm-hmm. and I just, I yeah. wa- like, I wound up like getting tossed and then surfacing and there's somebody like screaming at me cause my board hit him in the face. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, just like, yeah. I'm like, you I know, that's actually, it's funny, Brad, cause that, that's actually like, part of the reason that I never really took it on or I never picked it up very well in, in Southern California was, you know, I was always like pretty intimidated by the ocean and I got a late start. So everyone else was way better than me. And, and, you know, I have this very human fear of drowning and of big waves and sort of like losing control and getting hammered by the ocean. Um, and yeah, and having people yell at you. And so in New York, at least at the time I was there, it was it was less crowded. And right. I mean, Rockaway can get very crowded, but um, the waves are really pretty pretty small and manageable on your typical summer day. And so it was like the perfect place to learn, which is kind of ironic considering I I spent my teen years in San Diego and never really picked it up. Yeah, well, that's the thing, you know, like you're in this like what seems like a life or death situation. You've just gotten like pummeled by the ocean you finally surface you're like listen i'm just yeah. trying, i'm just trying to breathe here i'm sorry you know and it, right but i that said like i love to like uh boogie board or like go body surfing just being in the water i think is incredible oh, yeah. it, it feels so good i always try to convince people of this i'm like you don't realize like if you're feeling shitty go jump in the yeah. ocean like it sounds yeah. you know i but i'm telling you there's something to it it always makes me feel good I know. I, there's there's nothing else that can quite give you that same feeling. Like, you know, we live in Portland now, and we're about an hour and a half from the beach, which is about an hour and a half too too much for me. But um, we do try and make it down quite a bit. But we, um, you know, it's just in L.A. and we try to go. We we are fortunate to get to go to Costa Rica for a couple weeks every year. And who's we? And uh, my fiance and I, Lisa May. Oh, congratulations! And, uh, so. Thank you. Thank you. And, you know, there's just, there's something about it just, especially after like a stressful period of time or if you're working really hard or got, you know, been dealing with some family health situations and there's just, there's nothing else that, that quite makes you feel as, as, um, as good as getting, you know, like spending a lot of time in the ocean and getting out. And it's just like, uh, it's just like scours. Yeah. Scours all bubbles away for a while. Just getting tossed around, and like, let's you know, uh, not yeah. to, not to get too um, uh, galactic about it, but we did emerge from the ocean, <laughs> you know. <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, so I mean, there's something to that, I think. Like going back and getting in the salt water, and then like I think there's some sort of, um, you know, you can you can trace it back uh, from an evolutionary perspective, but you can also talk about like you know, 
the womb, you know, like the, the liquid. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know what it is, but it just makes me feel good. And uh, I wish I did it more often. I live in Los Angeles, but I'm not on the coast. So it's, yeah. it's one of those things like where you live in New York and like you only go to Central Park or like MoMA like once a year. It's like I'm in, right. I'm in the ocean probably like five to ten days a year if I'm lucky. And it should be more. Yeah. 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 I mean, I'm in kind of in the same boat living in Portland. I wish I wish I was in it every single day. But well, we do. Well, you know, this book takes off and things happen. Who knows? <laughs> Be living down, living down in Costa, yeah. living down in Costa Rica, like overseeing a fight. <laughs> well, we, you know, we've we've spent a ton of time down there, and we have thought about it, but um, I don't think it's within our grasp. And and um, I can imagine doing it for a short period of time, but uh, I I think I would miss I would miss the the culture and the literary community here in Portland. It'd be good to hey if you could just have like a little like uh, pied de terre. How do you pronounce that? You know, just like a little chef. Yeah, pied de terre. Yeah, something to like. You know, I, I would actually, I'd love to have one in Santa Monica. I love. I think it's such a fun place to yeah. hang out. But I don't have a spare million, so. Well, you know, it's coming. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> one right. one hopes. So, uh, let's get back to like your your narrative, like getting to New York. Um, you went through a breakup that was traumatic, uh, and then there was a robbery where you 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 know you lost a, a novel or like at least a, a significant portion yeah. of a novel that you were working on. So these two events um, factor in to uh, you know your turn to the the men's group and um, you know your turn to Melville. We got to talk about Melville and Moby yeah. Dick because that's yeah. that's such a, a huge um, part of the book, but. You know, I guess maybe we talk. We start with the uh, the relationship stuff, and and then get to the robbery, and then and then move from there. Sure, sure. Yeah, you know, I when I first moved to to New York, I was in kind of like trying to trying to hang on to this long distance relationship, and um, it unfortunately didn't work out. And those are hard. So it was, yeah, but it was. I think it was for me. It was like more than. Um, more than just going through a breakup, it was realizing that I um, had been sort of like reenacting the same codependent, unhealthy pattern in my relationships for over a decade, you know, the whole of my adult life. Which was, and what's this pattern? Uh, I think <laughs> it's difficult to explain, but um, I think it's... Uh, Sort of like just just like losing yourself in a relationship, which is something that I think is really easy to do, and and um, kind of turning another person into the, into your end all be all or your higher power, if you will, and not being able to function without that person. Right. And and um, so I was yeah I was confronted with that pretty pretty heavily and. And, um, so what, and what, like, you know, cause obviously the end of the long distance relationship was an instigator, but was there something else that like really brought that to clarity or was it just like you finally realized after doing this, going through this cycle over and over again, like you had some sort of epiphany, like, was there something that, uh, caused it beyond the breakup or did somebody like say something to you? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think my, my ex-girlfriend, um, said, you know, I was driving her to the airport and our, our relationship was ending at that point in time. And she said, you know, you, the only reason you really ever love anyone is to make yourself feel better. And that really, no one had ever quite nailed me like that. And that really, that really stuck with me. And I realized, 
you know, not only am I like, <clears throat> not only is this, this pattern sort of bringing me to my own knees, but it's also hurting other people. And, and I realized I need to do something about this. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, that makes sense. You know, like, it's funny. Like I, I don't, I'm no expert. Um, I, I got to make sure I say that, but I'm like, uh, I think I know that like in a ma- I'm married. So in my marriage or in any relationship, um, if you're approaching it from the perspective of like, what can I give? And if both people are doing that, it's going to be good. And if you're pers- approaching it from the perspective of like, what can I get? It's going to yeah. be bad. It's going to be bad <laughs> eventually. Um, yeah. and then the other thing that, you know, you describing that makes me think of is that like, you know, we all in our lives, you know, most of us anyway, go through multiple relationships before we find whoever it is that we end up with and yeah. you know, assuming that happens. And, uh, breakups, I mean, from an existential perspective are so intense to me. Like I think back to like exes and, you know, girls that I dated, like you really care about these people and then you break up and like, it's over. Like, I, I know there are stories of like exes who remain friends and like, they're like emailing every day or whatever, but, um, that's not the case with, uh, most of my exes. Like it's just over. <laughs> um, I know. you know, there's maybe some friendly communication, but it's just like, there's something so harsh about that to me that, that has always made me feel sad. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I tried to avoid like being melodramatic about it, but when you're going through it, it is like pure melodrama. It's so, it's so painful. It's like, I think that, um, you know, I studied psychology as an undergrad and, they talk about like they have this kind of point system for like major life stressors and, you know, going through the break, the breakup of like a long-term relationship is right up there with like losing a loved one or, I was going to say it's like a uh, death. Yeah. Yeah. In some ways it's, well, I don't want to say it's worse, but it, it, it's, it can be so excruciating and, and painful. You know, yeah. I don't know. Uh, and then let's, let's talk about the robbery. Cause that was another, um, you know, big, it's, it's another big factor in the book and obviously, um, played a big role in your life and in the, you know, the changing of your life and in the writing of this book. Yeah. Well, let's see. In 2006, uh, I flew from, from New York to Denver and I picked up a rental car and I drove to my stepsister's house. Um, and I was there for a wedding and, she lived in this kind of marginal neighborhood and uh, I pulled up to her house and I couldn't get the keys out of the ignition of the car. It was this like, you know, typical rental car, Chrysler Sebring. And I couldn't figure out what was going on. And my sister got in the car to try to help me. I got out of the car and I was looking through the owner's manual and I found this passage about the ignition ignition switch for this particular type of car. And it has this safety quote safety feature, which is that if the ignition, if there's a problem with the ignition, it'll trap the key in the ignition, um, which I just thought was insane (laughs) and like so typical of like American auto engineering. (laughs) Right. So my sister and I are are sitting there. uh, It's like midnight, you know, again, we're in this somewhat marginal neighborhood trying to get the keys out of the car and figure out what to do. And this black SUV pulls up and, uh, the back door flies open and there's this kid with like a bandana around his face and a gun pointed at us. And at first I thought it was a total joke. Um, I thought it, I thought it was like a kid with a paintball gun or something. Right. Uh, 
but pretty quickly it be- became clear that it was, wasn't a joke and, and we were being carjacked. <sighs> it was, um, you know, the odd thing, Brad, is like, at the time, there, I don't know, I didn't really feel, I just, I was in shock, but I didn't really feel that scared. Um, and I, I talk, in the book, I talk about how I've worked at um, some residential treatment centers with, with adjudicated kids. So I felt like I kind of, like, somehow from the get-go, I felt like I kind of knew this kid, or I knew what kind of kid he was, and I was I didn't think that he was the kind of kid that was going to actually shoot us. So... Uh, things progressed, and he got in the car, and he, like, it was like the slowest carjacking of all time. Um, and I, like, kind of peeked up into the car. You know, my sister and I are laying on the pavement, and he, and then I noticed that he, he was trying to get the keys out of the car ignition. <laughs> which you're, is a, you're, you're like the manual's right over there, dude, you know, like. Uh, <laughs> which is, like, a pretty odd move for someone trying to steal the car. And so I, you know, I... I had this thinking realization when I was on the pavement that my backpack and my laptop computer with the better part of this novel that I'd been working on for a few years was, was in the backseat of the car. And so I, I just said, Hey, you know, take the car. He'd already gotten all my money out of my pocket. I said, it's fine. Just, I please like, don't steal my, my backpack. Could you give that back to me? And he actually got out of the car, um, opened the backseat and threw the backpack down at me and so I'm clinging to this backpack and I looked over at my sister and I was like you know th- this could actually work out really well I was like genuinely sort of happy <laughs> um, believe it or not and because uh, uh, you know we were thinking we'd have to call a tow truck or bring the car back to the, the auto deal or to the rental car place and and uh, it was yeah so it was just this this funny moment like where it was like hey this, you know, this could work out but then you know <laughs> He had this older accomplice who um, did seem like the kind of person that might really could potentially have it in, you, in him to hurt you. Um, he was pretty frightening, and he, he like stormed up and grabbed the backpack and and oh. threw it into his car, and then they drove off. So, oh. um, well, yeah, it, it was like it was like a you know at the time, and I I hope that I wrote it this way, like because it was it was like tragic and crazy and traumatic but it was there's also a lot of humor in it you know it was really kind of like a a funny thing at the time that it was happening in, in such weird ways but but yeah I, I ended up like i had been working on this novel and to tell you the truth like the novel was not really going anywhere um but it was it was a hard loss and you know, i didn't lose it all but I'd, I'd emailed parts of it to myself and it was like this was like before thumb drives and I should have had an external hard drive, but I, you know, at that time I didn't. So I had like little bits and pieces of it, but I, I kind of, I, I, you know, I lost a good, a good chunk of it. And I, at that point I'm like, okay, you know, I guess that wasn't really going anywhere. So I'm just going to let it go. Yeah. Well, what, what other choice do you have? And you know, that whole situation, yeah. the whole situation, um, it reminds me of like, there's an article I read years ago about, um, micro expressions. <laughs> I don't know. If you, I don't know if about you, what? It's about micro expressions, like like making these snap judgments. And there's a scientist. Uh, I want to say he's like a Bay Area scientist who, you know, has gone through and cataloged every single facial expression that the human face is capable of, and it's not really that many. Um, right. But there are people who make these snap judgments of people, like especially in dangerous situations where. Yeah. You look at somebody and you instantly know, like this guy's not going to shoot, and this guy is. Mm-hmm. 
And mm. I don't know. That's like, that's, I find that yeah. fascinating. Cause I think that, I think that's true. I think you can sort of get a sense somehow, like you can tell when somebody is really dangerous and, and when somebody isn't oftentimes, I guess maybe there might be exceptions, yeah. but, um, that comes to mind. And then the, the second thing is that it reminds me of like the one time I've seen somebody pull a gun on somebody, uh, yeah. was my first day teaching at Santa Monica college. <laughs> uh, oh, wow. I was walking across campus and just like happened to stumble into this like f- dispute between two students and one of the students like they got they were like nose to nose and then one of the students just reached into his belt um you know and pulled out a pistol and held it to the guy's head the guy ran away everybody scattered i stood completely still just because that's how i behave in in a crisis (laughs) i just i just stood there i couldn't believe it i was like holy shit and um the guy you know put the gun back in his belt looked at me smiled flashed some sort of gang sign and walked away he eventually got arrested but what I remember walking away from it thinking was that, like, that was absurd. Like, you get into these yeah. situations and you think, like, oh, I'm going to be terrified. But when it happens that fast, uh-huh. there's a kind of absurdity to it. You're like, I can't believe someone's yeah. doing this. Like, this is <laughs> it's zany, you know? Like, Absolutely. It was complete. And it all happened so fast. It was just it was just totally absurd. And, like, my sister and I were, like, laying on the pavement, uh, sort of going, like, oh, this is really weird. You know, like, just sort of, like... <laughs> kind of laughing about it and it's i mean i mean i think part of that was the stress re- stress response too well yeah i mean you know it kicks in but uh where in denver was this like what i'm curious it was in a neighborhood called five points oh yeah five points of course which you know growing up it was like considered pretty pretty notorious uh, but now it's now, now it's all gentrified and you know uh-huh denver's from great. what i understand yeah, denver's yeah my sister my sister after that happened she you know both of us Despite the like kind of humorous elements of it, um, it was the aftermath. You know, days and weeks and months after it was over was was pretty difficult, and she she had a she went through a pretty hard time, and um, some other things happened in her neighborhood, and they finally just they're just like we're out of here, we're moving. So yeah, yeah, no, yeah. I think about that stuff with LA. Like, there's a lot of crazy stuff that happens in this neighborhood, and or in this yeah. in this town period and you know i guess it happens right. in in any urban environment but it makes you think especially when you have a family i'm like what am i doing you know but yeah at the same time yeah. it's like i really like that no good i was just going to say at the same time it's like well you know this is the world and you know you can, i guess the other option is you can go live in some small town in the middle of nowhere but shit happens there too you know <laughs> yeah i know well that was that was kind of an ironic thing was that you know i lived in brooklyn at the time, and I, I had gotten rid of my wallet and gotten a money clip because I figured there was kind of this strategy where I was thinking if I get, if I get mugged in Brooklyn, I can just like reach in my pocket and grab the money without taking out all my credit cards and my, my ID and all that. And um, and you know the, the funny thing is that I ended up testing out that strategy in Denver, um, and uh, it worked. <laughs> yeah, well. And, but but yeah, and I, I think it's some actually there's you know towns in the Midwest like maybe parts of Denver or certainly parts of St. Louis or um, there's a lot of you know there's a lot of different places that are probably even more dangerous than certainly than New York City which is increasingly very safe and um, maybe even Los Angeles. Yeah, I mean you know concentration of people isn't necessarily. Um doesn't necessarily have a direct correlation to higher crime. You know, sometimes when you have right. that many people in one space, it's actually like, it's safer. You know, it's, it's people, yeah. people aren't as inclined to do stuff. But 
Right. I, I want to, you know, I want to make sure that we talk about everything that I want to talk about. So I want to like shift into, um, you know, Moby Dick, and then also like in the aftermath of this, um, you know, this robbery, like you know, your emotional state and like how you eventually yeah. got into. Um, you know, you're, you're out of this relationship, you've been robbed, you've lost your novel, you're unhappy in your job, you're surfing, you're thinking a lot, yeah. you're thinking a lot about Melville. <laughs> yeah. And well, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, after, after the robbery happened, um, I was already struggling in, in, in a bunch of different ways. And, and I think that it just, it just really tilted me into, uh, an emotional tailspin and, and, uh, you know, I think I don't want to I don't want to downplay PTSD because I think that there's you know people that have been to Iraq and that have been through like really hideously traumatic events that have um, a really really serious form of that. But I think that I, I think that I did have a little bit of that. No, I think, and, and I I just want to interrupt because I don't think you know you have to go to Iraq to get PTSD. Like I think that's a real thing. Yeah. Like trauma is trauma, and. Um, yeah. you know, if you're getting a gun held uh, to your head in Iraq or you're getting a gun held to your head in Colorado, it's just, you know, sort of the same yeah. dynamic. Yeah. So I guess, especially if you're not, you're not prepared for it, you know, right. Like you don't have training around that whatsoever. Um, so anyways, I, you know, I just, I just went into this tailspin and things got very dark and I, um, you know, I've always had this real fascination with Melville and Moby Dick and it's, I mean, it's fascination bordering on obsession and I back in grad school I read this union interpretation of of Moby Dick and it compared the narrative uh, of Moby Dick to Carl Jung's concept of the night sea journey and the night sea journey is you know there, there are these voyages that I think that we all go on at different points in our lives where you know we're out at sea we're alone um we're directionless, we're scared, we're unsure if we're ever going to really make it back to solid ground. And it's, um, it's terrifying, but um, the thing about the night sea journey is that it's, it's always transformative. And so I really, I latched on to, I just kind of like at that point really clinging to whatever I could, um, to my friends, to, to, you know, to this men's group, um, but also to the narrative of Moby Dick as, as a survival narrative. Um, you know, I think so many people read the book, there's so much, it's, it's, you know, I think Moby Dick is freighted with so much, there's so many kind of like preconceived notions about it, and it's like, oh yeah, it's, you know, it's that long slog of a book about Ahab pursuing the white whale, and, you know, that's, that's the core of the book, but what really interests me about the book is not, so, I mean, Ahab, of course, but is Ishmael, who is the sole survivor of Ahab's madness. And, um, and I think that, uh, yeah, I just, I just, I'm just really interested in, in Ahab as a survivor, as the narrative, as, as sort of like a postmodern guidebook for, for, um, enduring life's dark passages. You mean Ishmael as a survivor? Yeah. Ishmael, excuse me. Right. Okay. It's it. And so, um, the other thing that I've, uh, I've read you, i you know, I was reading an interview that you did and, and you mentioned that the book from the perspective of craft um, had an impact on you because it gave you the idea that everything is permissible inside of a book, 
which I yeah. which I definitely really relate to because I like I like hybrid forms and yeah absolutely and it just it, I think and I just think from a purely from the perspective of imagination and working creatively. Um, you know, I think sometimes having restrictions that you put on yourself can be healthy and even, you know, can, um, catalyze really good work. But, uh, I, I think that sometimes we restrict ourselves, you know, like we think the, you know, there's a certain fixed idea of what a novel is and what, a, or what a memoir is and how a book should look and what a quote unquote good book is. And, um, you, you wind up hamstringing yourself because you don't. Uh, permit yourself to try things out and and put things together that might not seem at first blush to go together, but they wind up working beautifully together. You know that sort of thing. So, um, I'd be interested in hearing you speak a little bit about how uh, Moby Dick impacted you in that way. Well, you know, I, I, I've always been fascinated with the way that Moby Dick was a little bit of a flop when it first came out. You know, in the in the eighteen fifties, I don't think most people knew what to make of it because. It, it's, it's such an unusual novel. It, 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 like you said, it contains so many different forms. It's so polyphonic and, and multivalent, and it's, you know, I mean, you're reading along, and it's, and it's just seems like kind of a classic adventure story, kind of a page turner, and then all of a sudden it kind of turns into like a, um, an essay about, you know, like this, this like uh, taxonomy of whales and cytology, and then you come to another chapter, and it's like. Uh, it's the whole entire chapter is written in sort of like a screenplay format. And it's like a, it's like a bunch of sailors singing a sea shanty. And there's other parts that are just like pure poetry and, and the chapters vary in length so much. And it, it just, and then there's just other, like there's just, it's endlessly digressive. You know I mean? There's the central core of the story, but then Melville just allows himself to, to kind of like go on up all these, go on all, all these tangents in a way that, um, can be infuriating, but I think like ultimately is is um, is it's it's just it was just such an amazing creative feat that he was able to pull that off. And and, and think, it seems like ahead of its time, you know. Uh, oh, absolutely, absolutely, and and I think now I think so many people, especially people working in creative nonfiction, um, have have been working with this this concept of braiding for for some time now. And, and, and I just, I guess I just kind of felt like I found my voice, um, in, in that, in that, um, in, in not necessarily forcing myself to stick to just scenes. Like I think a lot of fiction is, is rooted in like everything has to be rendered through, through a scene set in a specific place in a specific time. And the author's voice does not come through and you have to show everything and tell nothing, right? That's kind of like the classic dictum of fiction. And, and I, I think there's a lot of merit to that, but I guess I just felt, I felt a little tired of trying to do that. And, um, I just, yeah, just like, you know, I think that the other thing that Melville does is he weaves in, he, he borrows and collages so heavily from so many different other books, like, the Bible or Owen Chase's um, narrative about the, the um, assault of the whale ship Essex by uh, a white whale. It's just full of all these other narratives. And I know the way that I usually tell a story is by incorporating other stories or talking about other books where the same thing happened or talking about movies or video games or TV, you know? And mm-hmm. so it's like really endlessly re- referential and, 
and I I just tried to kind of do the same thing in this in in my memoir. I didn't want to just tell uh, a straightforward linear story, and I also didn't want to just tell my story because um, my story is like you know it's it's pretty heavy, and there's a lot of there's a lot of um, emotional. I, I kind of went through a lot of emotional things, and I didn't want to burden the. I wanted to make it resonate with the reader on, on a heart level, but I didn't want to burden them constantly with all my problems. <laughs> I, I can I, relate I, to that. I can relate to that because it's like, uh, do you ever? Did, I mean, I'll ask you. Did you ever have the sense when you're writing this thing, like, oh, there's so many people writing about their problems. Like, did, did, does the world need one more book by a person talking about their bullshit? Like, I, I sometimes will yeah. have that, that thought in my head. It's like, how do I make this valuable? How do I make this not yeah. whi- like whiny or whatever? You know? Yeah. Well, and I also worried, like, you know, uh, you look at someone like Nick Flynn, who, uh, you know, another bullshit night in Sex City is one of my favorite books of all time. Here's a person that has had possibly the most difficult upbringing you could imagine, you know, right? in some way. And, uh, I mean, his, you know, his father was homeless and an alcoholic and his mother committed suicide when he was not even 21, I don't think. Um, and he managed to write that book without a shred of self-pity, you know? Right. And, and so I was conscious of that and I was, and I was worried about that. Um, like what, you know, my, the, the stuff that I went through was pretty minor compared to that, but, but, you know, it was, it was my story and I wanted to tell it. And I thought that there was, um, you know, I, I felt like I, I, I found something kind of, kind of universal about what I've got, what I've gone through. And then I guess the point that I was making earlier is that, um, I found ways to weave in other stories that I feel like resonate and accrue, um, throughout the book. And, and I really, really enjoyed that process. And I think it was, for me, it felt like a good way to um, allow the reader some, some room to breathe. Because it can get really, you know, a memoir can get really claustrophobic where you're like stuck in one person's head and yeah. especially through some difficult things. And so I just wanted to like, I wanted to dive in as, as deeply inward as I could and tell the truth about what had happened. But I also wanted to like expand outward and, and bring in news from the wider world. Well, that's interesting that you talk about it because it all it's it all sort of comes full circle in my brain, and so like see I'll, I'll see if I can like spell this out. But uh, first of all, like with regard to somebody like Nick Flynn or any memoirist who's working uh, from the raw materials of like a seriously fucked up situation, um, yeah, there's sort of like a, a a bitter humor or like a dark humor to it. I think sometimes, or I can experience this sometimes, where I have like suffering envy where I'm like, God, he's got so much. Yeah. About him. <laughs> like, right. like oh, he's, been, yeah, exactly. he's, been, he's been through such an excruciating, you know, uh, fire and like, man, you know, like what a wonderful, what wonderful material he's yeah. got. I'm, I'm so, I wish I had that, you know, it's like this weird thing yeah. where you wish you had the suffering or, you know, you have this weird envy of somebody else's like misery. Um, uh-huh. and so like, but when you don't have that, you know, like you, you went through, uh, some in, intense situations. Like it's, that's not to denigrate your suffering. We all have our suffering. Um, it's all relative, yeah. you know, it's all relative. Like you don't necessarily have to be, um, you know, uh, in some horrible part of the world, you know, starving to death in order to know what human suffering is. Um, yeah. you can be in Beverly Hills that there's people all over, you know, who are suffering, Absolutely. uh, in whatever Absolutely. way. And that pain is no less, um, uh, intense, you know, in, in, in a lot of ways. And so 
I, but I think when you have an, uh, self-awareness as you do and you, you know that you come from a situation that's not nearly as bad uh, as many people uh, in this world uh, have to endure, then it, and, and then I think back to Kessler, uh, and I'm getting that name right, correct? Andy, yeah, Andy Kessler. Yeah, yeah. I, you, we, the, the thing that we were talking about earlier about how um, you know he had turned outward and how there's that fine line between embracing or at least yeah. uh, leaning into your suffering and uh, seeing it for what it is and accepting it and finding ways to transcend it and work through it and transform it. Uh, you know, the fine line between that and then, you know, self-obsessive uh, self-pity or yeah. whatever. And so yeah, exactly. w- when it comes to your creative process and the decision to um, braid your narrative, you know, both your personal, you know, taking your personal narrative and then, um, you know, Melville and all these different threads that you're sort of weaving together. That to me seems like a turning outward. That seems like a healthy thing to do. And, and it's like you say, it's a way to, um, work against any tendency towards self-obsession or self-pity. Yeah. Yeah. No, thanks, Brad. I appreciate that. I'm glad that I'm glad it reads that way to you. Does that sound, I mean, does that sound sensible? Cause like I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm totally, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a, I'm very similar to you from a creative perspective. Like we write in much the same vein, I think. And, or at least that's where my brain is at right now. And, yeah. And I struggle yeah. with that. I struggle with that same thing. And I think it's an, I think it's a reflex, um, you know, like I, and it's also just like, I can't spend all this time, like just sobbing about my thing. Like I, I know that there's some of that, some of that is noble and good, but it's nice to kind of find ways to tie other stories in. It's just a natural sort of yeah, thing that happens. You know? Yeah. Well, I, I just tend to be drawn to, to writers that, um, that, that, yeah, that, that, that are really open about, and candid about whatever difficult thing they're going through that, you know, I'm thinking of like Mary Carr, um, another one of my favorite memoirists, um, Lydia Yukonich, Shale Strayed. Um, I feel like they're, they're, you know, they're willing to take these huge risks in terms of um, just kind of laying themselves bare on the page and making themselves vulnerable on the page. And, you know, and it's not always what, you know, I, I like to read a lot of different things, but I would say that first and foremost, that's what I tend to be primarily attracted to. And, and again, I, I love, I'm thinking of, um, I'm thinking of uh, Barry Lopez, who's another one of my favorite writers and writes about uh, really, in some cases, really difficult personal things. Um, he, you know, I think a year ago he he uh, wrote this essay that that really surprised everyone about how he had been uh, the victim of sexual abuse as a as a kid. And he, I, I was fortunate to study with him for a couple of days uh, during a seminar, and he talked about how um, the stance that he wants to take with his readers when he's when he's leading them into something difficult is. Um, similar to a friend placing their hand on the small of someone's back and just gently guiding them towards towards the hard parts, and I just thought that was such a such a beautiful image, and um, and and just a, such a respectful narrative stance. It's rather than like trying to grab someone's face and push them into you know right, like, uh, smother them with with all your problems or or um, and I, it just what, what what that speaks to me about is like an ethics. It's an ethics of how you treat the reader, um, and it's a consciousness about um, being respectful of, of the reader, and um, and I think that I think that uh, those are just important things to keep in mind as we as we 
continue to do this work. Well, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm now thinking of like, you know, when your dog pees in the carpet and people used to advocate to like rub the dog's nose in it, which is like the exact opposite of what you're supposed right. to Right. Not to mention it's cruel, but you know, like, yeah, that's, you don't want to, exactly. there's no need to rub the, just take the reader outside and let them, <laughs> Exactly. you know what I'm saying? So, um, you're now in Portland. Um, yeah. and you're, uh, working at this nonprofit, uh, called the independent publishing resource center. Uh, right. and you're facilitating people making books essentially, right? The narrative projects. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, it's a really, it's a really unique place. It's, it's kind of like a combination of a, a grassroots DIY publishing house, um, where people really do everything themselves. Um, and, uh, uh, a zine library, uh, and a creative writing school, and a book art center, and kind of it kind of melds and synthesizes all those things into this uh, really interesting space. About two years ago, we moved. We were downtown in a in a small 1,200 square foot office space, and a couple years ago, we moved into this much larger 4,000 square foot space. So we have this huge warehouse, and it's filled with uh, a letterpress studio and a state of the art computer lab with scanners and pretty pretty high-tech printing equipment, um, again, the kind of zine, zine library, zine chapbook library, a couple classrooms. Um, so what, our mission really is to support people in, in, um, in publishing their own writing and artwork and getting it out into the world in, in any format. So we have people that are making really beautiful uh, handmade zines and chapbooks. Uh, we have people that are doing digital publishing. We have people that are doing really fine art printing. Uh, you know, letterpress printing, and then you have people that are really kind of cross-pollinating all of those things, and and um, just taking advantage of whatever channel there is for for publishing. Uh, and there are so many interesting ways these days to to get your work out there. Wow, that sounds kind of perfect. And uh, yeah, I'm assuming you, you, you're you're happier there than you were working in the pit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just you know, it's just a better environment for me in a lot of ways. It's a better fit. Running a nonprofit is no picnic. Uh, running a, a small literary nonprofit in Portland is, yeah, it comes with a lot of challenges, but it's also, it's just, it's, I think it's more of that community that I was searching for. Right. Um, and we, we are just really blessed here with, with an amazing creative community and so many talented people and talented, generous people that are, that are willing to share what they know with other people. And, um, yeah, there's, you know, there's just a really interesting thing happening. So many things are happening in publishing, um, of course, the move towards digital publishing, which you know I think a lot of us as writers have kind of mixed feelings about. But concurrent with that, um, I, I see a lot of younger people, people in their 20s, early 30s, who are really interested in making things by hand and who um, see where things are going with physical books, which is that you know if you can if you can own an entire library of books on your cell phone or your tablet or your reader or whatever, um, I think that the books, the physical books that are going to continue to thrive are the ones that have a real, um, um, that are really well designed and have a really nice art, like visual art aesthetic. Yeah. No, like book is like book is art object. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that we're, we're really trying to help, um, you know, continue to facilitate and promote that that idea, and, and I think it's happening with with graphic novels, and uh, it's happening with some really interesting small presses in town, uh, like uh, 
a press called Perfect Day Press, um, Perfect Day Publishing, excuse me, that, that you know, all, that most of their covers are done with letterpress and, and uh, their books, yeah, they're just like these beautiful art objects. Wow. So that, that, that's something that's really, uh, that's really interesting and intriguing to me, that, that movement. Um, and then the other thing we offer is a year-long certificate program in creative writing and independent publishing. So it's kind of like a grassroots uh, DIY, inexpensive alternative to an MFA. And, and you know uh, what? And, and uh, it seems like there's a, a good space for that. That seems like something that people could use, especially these, you know, poets or someone. I think of poets especially just because it's so hard to make a buck as a poet, but yet you want yeah. to get, and, and I think there's less of a stigma around poets putting their work out on their own press or on a very, you know, on a small press or whatever. Um, yeah. but it's also like you go to get your MFA and you're taking on 60 grand or more in student loan debt. Yeah. And then you go out and you start writing poems. It's like, my Lord, you I know, know. It's tough. It's tough. So. And we're, we're really not anti MFA at all. Like I, I think in the right situation, I, I'm, you know, I did an MFA and I, I really, if you can get, if you can go and you can get a good deal and you don't have to get into debt, then I, by all means, I think it's a good thing to do. But, but we, we also, we also really take a lot of pride in what we offer, which is, yeah, this really relatively very inexpensive program doesn't get people deep into debt, and it and it helps them. And it, there's just these great communities that form among class members, and to me, that's like that's you know 80 percent of the reason you go to get an MFA in the first place is for that community and um, for the guidance from from good teachers, and we're fortunate to have a lot of great instructors. and And then the other thing that we we offer that that I don't know if too many MFA programs that do, but is is this immersion in in book arts and graphic design and digital publishing and, and all these new avenues and tools that are available to people to get their work out. And I think that, um, I think it's, uh, I think it's, I think it's just increasingly important. And I'm, I'm kind of shocked that more, more MFA programs aren't kind of doing similar things, you know? Well, maybe you're just on the leading edge, you know, it seems like maybe they'll, yeah. they'll catch up eventually. Maybe. I know. Yeah. Well, um, it's, it's been great talking with you. It's been, it's been also been, uh, you know, great to feature this book in the TMB book club and to give it a little push. I, I congratulate you on it and, uh, congratulate you on the work that you're doing up in Portland, uh, for this nonprofit and, and, you know, wish you well with whatever comes next. Uh, Brad, thank you so much. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I really did. Uh, I feel like the conversation went to really interesting places right from the get go. And I apologize that my, uh, still getting over this cold and my voice is faltering a bit, but, um, uh, thanks again for featuring the book. I really, it's been, been a real pleasure. All right, you guys, there you go. That's Justin Hawking. Go get his memoir. It's called The Great Floodgates of the Wonder World. It's available now from Gray Wolf. You can find Justin online at justinhawking.net. He's also on Facebook. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go sign up for the TNB Book Club over at thenervousbreakdown.com. Don't forget about the app the free official other people app uh, it's free i already said that go download it for free and then if you want you can sign up for premium right there inside of the app to access the program's full archives every single episode uh, only two bucks a month or five bucks for six months of access or nine dollars for a full year uh it's cheap please go do that support the program and uh yeah that was a great conversation i enjoyed that thoroughly this is a good book you should read it and, uh, you know, Justin, nice fella. I feel like I sort of have a man crush on Justin Hawking. I feel like uh, he and I should go 
uh, for a contemplative walk on the beach together. I have some great episodes coming up, incidentally, some very good guests, so please stay tuned uh, and uh, please spread the word. Let everyone know that this is happening. Help me to become an internationally famous media powerhouse. Please remember that Einstein's ashes were scattered in the Delaware River and that Botticelli in his lifetime seems to have only signed one of his paintings. That's it for now. Thanks again, Justin Hawking. Thanks to the folks at Grey Wolf Press. Thanks to you for listening. I appreciate it. And I will be back in just a few days with another episode of this program uh, featuring in a conversation with another bookish writerly type person. Okay? Okay. I think that's it. Uh, if you want to read some stuff, go check out uh, otherppl.com. Mira's, uh, Mira's mother, incidentally, wrote something this week. Her name is Laura Norton. So check that out. I'm going to go do laundry right now. You hear that? Uh, I'm a domestic god. God. <laughs>